From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. And I think there's a lot that needs to be done to teach students that, um, you know, net worth is not self-worth, that you have to worry about society at large. You know, all companies have limited liability because they owe society a duty of care, but somehow people have forgotten the duty of care part. That's Indra Nui. She's the former CEO and chair of PepsiCo, a company she led for 12 years. In that time, she made waves through her initiatives to transform the company's human and environmental impacts. Nui was the first woman of color and immigrant to run a Fortune 500 company. She's been ranked among Forbes' most powerful women multiple times, and just last year was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She's also, unsurprisingly, a best-selling author. Last year, she wrote her memoir, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. We talk about moving to the United States from India, the importance of corporate citizenship, and how to improve the workplace for families. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey folks, some of you may have heard the news that my new children's book is now out. It's called Justice Is. The book is a kind of guide for young truth seekers. It showcases trailblazers throughout history, from Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells to Malala Yousafzai and John Lewis. And it's illustrated by Sue Cornelison, who brings them to life on every page. I'm donating all my proceeds from the book to the New York Legal Assistance Group, a leading civil legal services organization that advocates for people experiencing poverty or who are in crisis. Head to justiceisbook.com to buy your copy of Justice Is for the budding leaders of tomorrow. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user Hula Bunny. Great name. How much do you need to anticipate what legal challenges a target may raise before you issue the charges? Like a chess game, or do you plow forward with a plan and react to the challenges as they raise them? And then Hula Bunny further comments, I imagine any charges against Trump require a lot of anticipation of his counter moves. So that's a great question. And I suppose in certain jurisdictions where there's an on-the-scene arrest and charges are brought, particularly by DA's offices, you have to charge right away and then you sort of see what challenges arise uh, as they unfold. But in my experience at the Southern District of New York, and in federal cases, and the kind of case that may ultimately be built against someone like Donald Trump, that's complicated, that happens over time, uh, and that requires a good deal of investigation, you absolutely focus on and anticipate the legal challenges and legal defenses in advance of bringing the charges. In fact, I think it would be irresponsible not to. And this happens in many contexts. For example, in my experience overseeing the case against a terrorist named Ahmed Gailani, there was a question about whether or not certain statements uh, made during his time at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, might be suppressed. In gun cases, there are often issues of suppression, and sometimes those legal arguments are quite compelling, and you have to take that into account before you decide to charge. In some of the cases that you're familiar with, that we've talked about on the podcast, uh, and on the Insider podcast with Joyce, for example, the case against the killers of Ahmad Arbery, 
I'm certain the prosecutors thought deep and hard about the self-defense defense of those folks, made the correct determination that that wasn't a viable defense if the jury was thinking about it properly, and brought their charges. In fact, it's not just anticipation of particular legal arguments, but the shape and form of the defense narrative. Uh, in fact, I was taught when I was a junior prosecutor that you need to consider and anticipate what you're going to say in summation and rebuttal even before you finish writing the charging document. So I would not only put together the facts for purposes of marshalling them for an indictment or a complaint, I would keep a running document of arguments I would make to rebut the arguments that I anticipated the defense would make. And in fact, often in meetings when people were presenting cases to me uh, that were significant enough for me to weigh in on, I would say to them, well, that's sort of interesting. Can you hum a few bars of your summation? I think that strengthens the charge that's the responsible thing to do. Uh, and that's how I think good prosecutors go about doing their job. With respect to Donald Trump, if there's ever going to be a charge that relates to his conduct on January 6th, and the days leading up to January 6th, as one example, a defense and legal challenge will be he was engaged in normal political speech. And depending on what other evidence there is, that's a legitimate defense argument. And before anyone, whether it's a DOJ or any place else, decides to bring a charge against Donald Trump, and I'm not saying there ever will be, you have to consider the case law, the precedent, the arguments about that First Amendment defense, certainly. Now, once you get to trial, you hone and refine and craft your arguments in response to the arguments made by the defense, but you absolutely have to consider them in advance if you can. This question comes in a tweet from Mary Mad Dog, another great name. Mary Mad Dog asks, what, if any, are the legal ramifications of all that Trump said in last week's Texas rally? So I won't limit myself to the Texas rally, but Donald Trump has said things in writing, in statements that he's put out and at the rally that in combination, I think, are not insignificant. Remember, a key issue in holding Donald Trump accountable for the insurrection of January 6th hinges upon what his state of mind was, what he wanted those people to do. And so some of the evidence is the speech he gave on 1-6. Some of it is his inaction for 187 minutes when people were overtaking the Capitol, chanting, hang Mike Pence, looking for Nancy Pelosi, trying to overturn the election. That has been the focus of everyone's interest. And so when Donald Trump puts out a statement and says, essentially, Mike Pence should have, in Donald Trump's words, overturned the election, that's a word that now Donald Trump has adopted. That, in many people's minds, that's akin to an admission that that was what he wanted. And that's centrally important to his state of mind when he made the comments he made on January 6th. Similarly, when he said on January 6th that he loves the insurrectionists, he said, I love you, that was an indication that they did what he wanted them to do. We have further proof of this when you hear Donald Trump dangling explicitly the possibility and indeed likelihood that if he gets elected president again in 2024, he will pardon the insurrectionists. That is a data point for people to argue that on the day of January 6th, he wanted them to do exactly what they did. That's not great for him. As further evidence that he wanted Mike Pence to overturn the election, he has suggested that Pence should be investigated for not doing what Donald Trump wanted him to do. So you take all these things together, overturn the election, pardon insurrectionists, investigate Mike Pence, protest if Donald Trump is indicted, which is sort of a repeat of 1-6, which he seems to be advocating for. You put that all together. Is it dispositive? No. Is it the thing that gets you over the finish line with respect to a charge against Donald Trump? You know, probably not. But you add it to all of the other actions and communications and statements, uh, and you get a pretty good picture of what Donald Trump wanted. You add it also, by the way, to the evidence that Donald Trump was personally involved in the plan for three different cabinet agencies to seize voting machines, although he didn't end up doing that. And you combine it with his calls to Georgia state elections officials, you put all of that together, you start to get a pretty thick portrait of what Donald Trump wanted. And what he wanted was an insurrection to overturn the election. So the question is, you know, who's looking aside from the Fulton County District Attorney in Georgia? What is DOJ doing? But certainly prosecutors would be paying attention to these statements. You always pay attention to the statements of a target. Vitally important. Mm -hmm. 
Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Hey folks, we have a job opening at Cafe. It's a dual role. We're looking for a law and politics nerd to be an assistant for me and an operations coordinator for CAFE. The job is based in New York. To learn more and to apply, head to cafe.com slash jobs. That's cafe.com slash jobs. There seems to be nothing Indra Nui can't do. The former CEO and chair of PepsiCo Nui is also the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, My Life in Full. In it, she describes her experience moving to the States, being a woman of color in corporate America, and the complicated task of balancing home and work life. Indra Nui, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Great to be here. And thank you for having me, Preet. Absolutely. Long overdue. You have had a legendary career in the corporate world in philanthropy, and all sorts of other things. I want to congratulate you on your book that recently came out called My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Did you have fun putting that book together, or was it hard work? It's a tremendous amount of work. Anybody contemplating a book should be ready for months and months and months of hard work to get the book right. Because this is not a novel or a easily written book. It's a book with stories supported by history, uh, lessons derived from it. So it required a lot of thinking and a lot of planning to get this book just right. So it's a lot of work. Yeah, I, I'm sure that was the, the case when I wrote my book as well. So I, I often wonder what makes people successful. And often it's something from their youth. And I wonder if the following you credit with some of your success. You tell the story of how at the dinner table, your father made you and your brother give a speech. I don't know if it was every night or some nights or many nights in which he designated you as a president of a country or the prime minister or a minister from a country and you had to take a position and then he would vote. Can you, can you tell us about that and how that may have affected your later rise? I think this was my mother at dinner. She would make the two daughters do this. Oh, it was your mother. And, um, you know, this was just her way of living life vicariously through us because 
she never went to college. And had she gone to college and progressed further, she would have been CEO. She's just super efficient and smart. But she's interesting because on the one hand, she'd say, if you were chief minister, what would you do? If you were prime minister, what would you do? You know, whenever she embarked on this particular line of questioning, it was a different leader. At the same time, she'd say, but I'm going to get you married at age 18. I hope you know that. <laughs> but you can dream. Because, you know, on the one hand, she had this foot on the accelerator which said, dream big because anybody can. On the other hand, we live in a society where people expect the elders to get the young girls married at age 18. So I feel, you know, feel for her because she was dealing with the brake and the accelerator. But at the end of the day, the accelerator won out and we were allowed to dream, dream big. And they enabled it. So that's great. Do you remember any particular leaders whose speeches you gave? Um, it's not speeches, roles. I mean, uh, we were naive and kids at that time. So our frame of reference was fairly narrow. But when we were asked to be prime minister of the country or chief minister of the country, interestingly, chief minister's job always started with make sure water is available and power is available right. because water was not available in Madras at that time. So the speech would always be about how I will make sure that water is available. And so it's interesting how your frame of reference and how you look at these leaders is largely based on what you're going through on a day-to-day -day basis, which actually is a broader lesson for today too, because you can't look at leaders in a very lofty way. You've got to look at it through the eyes of the public who are struggling or have great needs and are looking to leaders to solve those problems. I asked you just before we started taping, if you were busy, which I realize is a silly question to ask someone like you, because you said yes. And then I asked you, has there ever been a time in your life when you were not busy? And you said no. And then you said, well, maybe I need to think about figuring out a way to be lazy like me. I said, I have a lazy gene. <laughs> I'm generally busy, but I do have a lazy gene. Do you enjoy vacations? No, I don't. And that's a problem. That's a remarkable thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think that uh, anytime I go on vacations, my dream is to just sit in the hotel room reading a book or the balcony of a hotel reading a book. So as my family says, why do we come to an exotic place for you to sit in the balcony reading a book? You might as well stay home. In reality... If you really want me to go on a vacation, I just like to stay home reading. I don't know why. That's who I am. I, uh, I love to read. I love to expand my brain all the time. And this may be one of the fatal flaws that I have. I don't know what downtime is about. And um, I'm wired. But you're not unhappy. You're happy working. I'm, I'm thrilled working. In fact, it keeps me alive. But I'm wired differently. So... I'm always exploring. I'm always reading. I'm always trying to look at footnotes and figure out what it says. I have no idea why Preet. So when you were on vacation, even when you were CEO and chair of PepsiCo, how often did you call the office? Uh, I always went on vacation with bags of reading stuff. And, um, you know, I probably called three or four times a day at least. And this is just my obsession. I was just that kind of a CEO and I thought that if somebody needed me, I had to be available for them at every point in time. So I always went with several bags of mail. I read it all. I came back sort of reinvigorated because I'm now caught up, not behind. So, c'est la vie. <laughs> c'est la vie. Let's talk about sleep, and we'll move on to other things. It's not surprising for me to learn that your pattern of sleep involves very little of it, that throughout your career... You work all day, you sleep four or five hours, then for a time you play tennis and then get to the office. And that's always been my sense of things for very busy and successful people, that they don't sleep very much. But I've lately been asking other successful guests on the show how much they sleep. And I've been surprised to hear how many of them say eight hours. Do you think they're fibbing? I think eight hours is a good amount of time to sleep. It uh, helps the body repair itself and you emerge actually better after eight hours of sleep. But they also say there's about one or 2% of people around the world who've got a genetic malfunction where they cannot sleep. So typically they say, try to sleep early and then force yourself to sleep. So I go to bed at 9.30 saying, good, I'm going to sleep a whole night. 
Then I wake up and I go, I feel so refreshed. <laughs> yeah. I look at the clock, it's 11.30. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do till the morning? So it's like counting sheep from 11.30 in the night to, you know, three or four in the morning, then I give up. I have no idea. I honestly believe that if there's one thing I have to learn, it's relearn how to go to sleep. That's, a, that's something I'm committed to doing. What's interesting, this is the second time now. First one we talked about, you know, you're, you're not loving vacation, your addiction to work, and now your failure to sleep very much. You characterize it as a flaw and something you need to fix, even though you're fairly late in your career. Why don't you instead think of it as a benefit or an advantage or something that helped you? Well, all of those things, you know, you could either interpret it as Indra as a workaholic or you could say that's what keeps Indra alive and active. On the other hand, everything I'm reading these days says that for the body to be uh, healthy through your life, however long it is, it requires eight hours of sleep so that the cells repair themselves and rejuvenate themselves. So I'm going with the science preet. And if uh, the science you know, says that I need eight hours of sleep, I've got to inch my way to eight hours. So if I can add an hour every three or four months, um, I've done something wonderful. All right. Well, let me know how that goes. <laughs> you can help me out also. Yeah. So you, like me, were born in India mm-hmm. and came to the United States. I came fairly young. You came after college. Right. And you say something somewhere that I found interesting. You said, at some point, you got the American bug. What does that mean? Well, you know, in the 70s, uh, I graduated from college in 1971, then went on to uh, Madras Christian, I'm sorry, graduated from high school, went to Madras Christian College, then I am Calcutta in 76, I graduated. A lot of my classmates who were in IITs or the IIMs left and went to the U.S. because at that time, everything we'd heard about the U.S. was exciting. The U.S. was the center of culture, music, innovation, inventions. It was a meritocracy. Anybody could grow and thrive and have their dreams fulfilled. And every one of the people that I knew that came to the U.S. always wrote back saying, this is such a different environment than a newly emerging India. And people kept saying, Indra, you belong here. You've got to come here. So after a while, that infection sort of grabs you because people are writing to you constantly saying, you've got to come here. So you get infected with that bug. And you say, I want to go and see what it's like there. Because I used to listen to all of the American music and loved it. I read all about uh, the greatness of America. I'd go to the American Consulate Library and read all the books there, the magazines. And then ultimately I made my way to the U.S. via Yale. And I must say, everything that people told me then was true as it is today. You tell a great story in your book, and I'll quote from it. You say, quote, I believe in the American story because it is my story. As a CEO, I once sat in the 18th century wood-paneled dining room at Checkers, the British Prime Minister's country manor, and was asked why I had immigrated 30 years earlier to the U.S. and not the U.K. And you responded, because, Mr. Prime Minister, I wouldn't be sitting lunching with you if I'd come to the U.K. What did you mean by that? Well, I honestly believe then, as I do now, that the U.S. is still one of the most welcoming countries, and a real meritocracy. And uh, really, my background or my ethnicity didn't really matter as long as I delivered and people mentored me and pushed me along. At that time, when I was looking at the UK, I didn't see many people like me in senior positions or in CEO positions. So I honestly believe that I had a chance to lunch with the Prime Minister at Chequers only because I was CEO of a large company in the US. And... Um, I would not have attained that position had I come to the United Kingdom. So I was being honest and telling him that. And he paused for a moment, thought for a while and said, you're probably right and we ought to do something about it. Do you think the U.S. is as welcoming as it used to be? I think so. I think if you look around the world, there's been a protectionism that's invaded almost every country. And relative to every country in the world, I would argue that the, I would observe that the U.S. is still the most welcoming country because if you come here and you contribute, you still are given the opportunity to progress. But what about on the issue of immigration? Do you worry that there's some anti-immigration sentiment in the U.S. that was not present before? 
I think most of the anti-immigration sentiment, at least from my perspective, is, uh, you know, the illegal immigration that people are reacting to. Very, very talented people who are going to contribute to the country. I think there's still a very, very good welcoming environment for them. What was your favorite product that PepsiCo made? Several. I'd say... I was a huge consumer of Lay's potato chips because you I gonna, you know, a, I'm sub, I'm almost I'm almost shocked that you're answering because I would thought you would say I love all my children, but I'm glad but I'm glad you're answering. No, you know, I love all my children, but this is one where I do have some favorites. I grew up with my mom making potato chips or buying it from the local store. Then you get a bag of Lay's, uniform quality, great taste, uniform crunch, and you fall in love with the product. So Lay's to me was like the gold standard of potato chips. And on beverages, you know, there's an orange soda that's sold outside the United States called Mirinda. That's my favorite. It's, it has an unusual taste that, you know, appeals to my palate. So a Lay's and a Mirinda together is sort of heaven for me. You know, you, you and I have talked about this. You were kind enough to invite me to a book event a few months ago. And the most interesting fact, and I learned a lot of interesting facts. The most interesting fact I learned maybe was that at least at the at the present time, a bag of Lay's potato chips has less salt than a slice of white bread. Can you explain how that's possible? So when we talk of a bag of Lay's, don't think of this gigantic bag of Lay's. He was referring to a single serve bag of Lay's, a small bag, which people buy in a convenience store and eat it as they walk around. Um, the big difference is that salt in a Lay's potato chips is surface salt. Salt in a white bread slice is salt used for leavening. So you need a minimum amount of salt in that white bread in order for it to rise and be fluffy. What our scientists did with the salt was apply the salt crystals in a way that spread the salt on the chips, uh, not densely but evenly, and also went to a smaller crystal structure for the salt so that you get that dose of saltiness in your mouth but you don't need a lot, lot of salt to feel like you're eating a salty snack. So it was a scientific breakthrough that our, our technologists uh, you know, managed to pull off uh, by going to smaller crystals and spreading them out differently on the, on the surface of the chip, you know, got you the saltiness without too much salt. And so that's why a single serve bag of Lay's has less salt than a slice of white bread. I think you need to market that a little bit better because I think that's a, that's a fascinating fact. But here's maybe a dumb question. Why bother? Why bother to make that change? Well, I tell you something. Uh, PepsiCo was known for making what I call fun-for-you products, products that historically had high levels of fat, sugar, and salt. We also made better-for-you, which was zero-calorie products or baked lays or baked uh, ruffles. And we also made good-for-you products like Tropicana and Quaker Oats. But I honestly believe that even the fun-for-you products, if we could deliver those products with less fat, sugar, and salt, that's just being more responsible. So a few things we did was reduce the sugar levels in full sugar Pepsi. And in many countries, from the time I started to the time I left, there was something like 20 to 25% less sugar in a blue can Pepsi, and the product still tasted great. Similarly on Lays, reduce the salt level, still enjoy the product. But if America has a health crisis, why not contribute to improving the quality of the food system just a little bit? And so these were incremental changes we kept making and hoping that that would slowly start improving the overall quality of products we put out in the marketplace. I guess when you were making these plans to produce products that were a little bit healthier, was that because there was an ambition a little bit to nudge people to more healthful foods or an anticipation that that's where the market was going and you didn't want to be left behind or both? A little bit of both. I think that when we wanted to nudge people to healthier offerings or to offerings that had zero calorie or had positive nutrition, we'd put the better for you, good for you products at eye level so that they knew that those products were also available that were great tasting and priced exactly like the fun for you products. But the bigger challenge for us was to take these highly optimized fun for you products, the Lay's, the Doritos, the Pepsi, the Mountain Dew, and say, 
How can we maintain the great taste, have zero taste deterioration, slowly take down the salt, fat, and sugar? And, um, you know, if we thought the consumer would walk away from the product because we've reduced any of these uh, salt, fat, and sugar levels, we would have titrated the product formula differently. But we realized that by slowly taking down the levels, you can actually have no taste degradation, get the consumer uh, used to a slow, slightly lower levels of, a level of salt, and still offer a great product. So this was a desire to just produce a better pipeline of products for the American consumer. across the, I mean, actually consumers across the world. Was there any pushback within certain segments of the company? Um, not when people tasted the product and they go, wow, <laughs> right. this is fantastic. Are you sure this has less salt? Yep, it does. Did you do blind taste tests? A lot. Triangular tests. You know, typically what happens is when you take the base product and then you take the product with slightly less salt, uh, sometimes 50-50 people can guess what is which. But if you did a triangular test where you have three products, two of them are the same, one is different, people have a tougher time telling them apart. So in triangular tests, uh, people couldn't tell them apart, which was fantastic. You know, it occurs to me that PepsiCo makes a lot of products. When you were CEO and chair, how many different products was the company putting out? Oh, globally, we must have had uh, 250, 300 brands. But we had 22 brands with more than a billion dollars of retail sales each. Then we had another 10 or 15 brands with more than $650 million of retail sales. So the company was a um, phenomenal branded products company. And I'd say perhaps one of the best marketing companies in the world. And so uh, in the consumer product space, if you wanted to be in marketing and product management, uh, PepsiCo was the place because it was youthful, it was exciting. It would try all kinds of new things. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of got younger when you came to PepsiCo. But the reason I'm asking the question is, you're the head of a company that puts out actual products. It's not software. It's not one product. Did you feel a need to, or did you, try everything that PepsiCo made? I would say the numbers go like this. <laughs> In a typical strategy session or a visit to one of the divisions, uh, over two or three days for any one business, it is possible that I would taste 50 different products, of which 45 may be rejected and go, it goes back and gets rejiggered. And uh, if I go to the UK or Mexico or something, over two days, I might taste 25, 30 products and snacks and another 10 products and beverages. So you're constantly tasting, constantly, but not just our products. We're constantly buying competitors' products and opening bags and looking at the packaging, looking at the product, tasting it. So this is a, a big food fest. It's fantastic. Well, this is why you're not sleeping, Indra. <laughs> <laughs> I figured no. it out. If, if you're drinking Pepsi all day long, then you're not going to sleep as well. It's product of every kind, not just Pepsi. Was there, was there a time that you, this is a random question, that you tried a product that your company made you didn't like it very much. You didn't care for it. But everyone else said it was terrific and it was popular. Did you have that experience? Um, I'd say au contraire. A couple of times I try a product and I'd say, I don't get it. I don't like it. But then people would say, look, let's show you all the consumer tests. It's come out extremely positively. So, Indra, you can't be just your uh, taste buds that decide the product. And I'd say, you know, you're right. Go ahead and launch it. And um, I hate to say this, I would say more than half the time. You were right. I may have been right. I may have been right. So, uh, but you know, this is not a, uh, the great thing about consumer products is that the cost of failure is low print. And so you can afford to try things in a small market or a small country. And if it fails, pull it and uh, launch the next product. So this is not a, a high cost launch and a failure. Is there a particular failure that sits with you? There's the failure of the competitor some years ago with New Coke. Is there anything like that that you recall in your tenure and, and what you learned from it? Well, um, you know, uh, one of the things I say that it took us a long time to launch was sparkling um, water. You know, there were companies like uh, LaCroix that had a sparkling uh, flavored water. And uh, we were very late to the table. 
But when we launched Bubbly in 2016 or 17, uh, today it's more than a billion-dollar brand. Uh, it's just that sometimes we are late to the game. And um, the reason we are late to the game is because we look at the competitors' products and we say, it's not the perfect taste. It's not passing our consumer tests. So till we get the product right, Memood would not allow us to launch products. But when we launch it, we do a damn good job. Now, as a leader, I look here going, that business is getting to half a billion dollar, guys. What's wrong with you? Why don't we have a product? And I go crazy, but then the team is usually right. We have to get the product right. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Indra Nui after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you were CEO, did you think of yourself as a CEO who happens to be a woman? Or did you think to yourself that there was something about being a woman that made you a different kind of CEO? Perhaps both. Uh, I think that I viewed myself as a CEO. And I said, the fact that I'm a woman, I'm going to be scrutinized more. I'm going to be written about a lot more. People are going to rejoice when I fail because they told me that. We're going to lift you up so that when you fall down, there's a bigger uh, fall and, you know, there's a bigger story. So I'd hear all of this stuff. And so I knew that I was the uh, attention of a lot of people. Also because I was one, perhaps the only woman who ran a Fortune 50 company. That caused a lot of focus on my leadership style and the company. I think that I also decided I wasn't going to change who I was. I'm an empathetic person who's also tough. I love my people uh, while I also hold them to high performance standards. And so I didn't change my style. I kept running the company without remaking myself as a completely new person. And so um, people uh, commented on my leadership style. People commented on my dressing. People commented on everything about me. The challenge is to stay the course and do the job. What was the toughest thing about being CEO? God, it's such a lonely job because, you know, there's a problem every day, Preet. Uh, and sometimes only the problems come to you, right? <laughs> not, not only, but largely. Well, the good things you rejoice about, but the problems, you know, you agonize over. And people like me doubly worry about the problems. And so um, when. Problems happen because it's a big company, right? And there's some issue in some part of the world every day or every other day. And you can't really come home and talk about all the issues because at some point your family goes, God, we're just tired of hearing all your problems. <laughs> and so if you want to have a harmonious family life, you've got to park some of those problems and come home, you know, lighthearted. 
I try to do that. Sometimes I talk about it to my husband, but even he had a job and how much can he listen to my problems? And so you can't talk about it to your peers because there are no peers when you're CEO. You can't talk to your board because they are your bosses. Uh, and you can't talk about it to other CEOs because, you know, financial disclosure rules say you can't share too much, especially if they own PepsiCo stock and you're not going to meet anybody and say, do you own PepsiCo stock? If you don't, I want to share something with you. So what happens is you start to internalize a lot of the stuff. You talk to yourself. And that's why they say CEOs have to have resilience, incredible resilience. And they've got to be able to shoulder all of these issues and power through them. It helps to have a supportive family and a supportive group of people around you. But at the end of the day, the bulk of the issues that you have to deal with, you have to deal with it yourself. So that's a good segue to talking about work, the nature of work, work-life, family balance, whether that's changing, what the proper balance is. And you tell a story about one of your daughters who once wrote you a note and you say you still keep it in your desk drawer because you were working a lot, as you always did. And you say on a big sheet of construction paper decorated with flowers and butterflies, she begs me to come home. And the note says, quote, I will love you again if you would please come home. And the word please is spelled out seven times. Mm -hmm. How did you feel when you got that note? It always breaks your heart. I mean, it breaks your heart because that the kid took the time to write this and leave it for you or give it to you. And you read this and you go, what kind of a mom am I? You know, it's a tough one, Preet. I tell you, had I quit the job and stayed home, I don't know if my kids would have been happy to have mom around all the time. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know if I would have been a good mom just staying home. I don't know because I'm just wired a certain way. I tried to be the best mother I could. I may not have been around all the time, but I will tell you, when the kids needed me, I was always there. And I mean, look, I gave my kids, if they had the flu, I would run home from the office three, four times a day just to give them their medicines, whatever, irrespective of which other family member was with them. So I was a very involved mother. I was on the school board. I never missed a single board of trustees meeting. So I never missed a single mother-daughter liturgy. And so, except one, I think. I was a good involved mother, but I was always traveling or, you know, busy with work, reading. As one of my kids would say, Mom, why do you still have homework? Because that's the job. <laughs> so you managed it in some way, but as you point out in the book and as you've said many times publicly, there are too few women CEOs. Why is that still the case in 2022? Um, I think, first of all, you've got to look at the pyramid. Let's just take a company like PepsiCo. You know, there are about 15,000, 20,000 people in managerial positions around the world. By the time you get to the CEO minus one, there's 15 people. And from there, one person gets to be CEO. So the tyranny of the numbers is that the pyramid narrows so damn much that you've got to rise up to the top, not just by doing your job well, but also keeping up with all the changes in technology around you, businesses around you, the world around you, and somehow emerging to be the best person to move to the next level. So it's a real tough slog to get to the top. And if you're trying to then balance family and work in this pyramid that's narrowing, it gets to be very, very difficult unless you have a fantastic support structure at home and you have the courage and the resilience and the bandwidth to be able to make this journey. I think many men have a fantastic support structure at home in terms of their wives. Many of the women don't have the support structure, especially if they want a family and want to have kids, which many people want to. And it's a very gratifying and fulfilling experience. Many companies don't provide those support structures for family builders. So what is the woman supposed to do? Now, I will tell you, in today's world post-COVID, with the evolution of all these technologies, remote working technologies, the smartphone has been a, a game changer. Uh, the fact that you can FaceTime, text, uh, you know, uh, FaceTime video, 
You can use Zoom, whatever these tools are. makes a huge difference. You can cut down your travel. You can interact with your office from home. You can interact with your kids via technology. Those didn't exist then. So I'm actually more optimistic about the future to say that what was a grand juggle between so many things that had to get done with technology can actually be a balance, balanced life. And so I'm optimistic about the future. And I really believe that this is going to give women a chance to somehow make it all work. And the only big issue that has not been addressed is how do we get men to think about their role as equal partners in family development and nurturing, as opposed to saying family is female, it's your problem. The more we get men to the table to say we're going to lean in and help uh, bring up the family, nurture the family, and any sort of family is an equal partnership between the husband and wife, I think that will be good times. It was in my case. What about the role of companies? You talk about the three pillars. What should companies do more of and better to help families? It's companies, governments, it's communities, it's all of them. Because if you, you know, only 18 or 20% of people are employed in corporate America. But let's start with corporate America. I think that paid leave is something that should be thought about. It's a human issue, not a political issue. We need to do that. Uh, job flexibility, because of COVID, we've all learned what job flexibility is, but we'll talk about that in a second. And the third is a care infrastructure, critically important to allow all talented people to come to work and for families to be created. Now, the big challenge, Preet, and this is something we, is not being talked about. As we talk about a care infrastructure, in the past, when I was running PepsiCo, we put a childcare center either on-site or near-site our offices. In today's world, if people are going to work flexibly, should childcare centers be in communities where people live, not necessarily near offices? Should it be near co-working uh, buildings near where you live? I think in the next year or two, a lot of discussion has to happen about the workforce, the workplace the future of work, but thinking through where should we locate all the support structures and how are we going to pay the childcare workers a living wage so that they can actually look upon these jobs as good paying jobs as opposed to subsistence jobs where they have to take a second job working in a grocery store or in a Starbucks. There's a lot of discussion that needs to happen. Now, on flexible hours, I think this is the wonderful thing about COVID. Flexibility is becoming the norm. But I want to tell you that there's a problem with flexibility too. We have to make sure we don't create two classes of citizens, one group that comes to work and one does, does not, because the people who come to work shouldn't define the culture and the people who work flexibly be left out. Second is, there are many jobs where you do need people to come in two or three days a week so that you can develop people, you can get to know them as human beings, you can see what kind of leadership skills they have. So I hope the next two or three years, or next two years, I'd say, not three years, CEOs are doing all kinds of experiments in different parts of their companies to see what's the best way to think about the future of the workplace. Do you support legislation requiring paid leave, which is the norm in, in many, many other Western countries, industrialized countries? Yes and no. I think that what we have to think through, the most difficult aspect to think through is what will small and medium-sized enterprises do for paid leave? If somebody is employing 10 people and two people have to leave because they have illness in the family or one of them is having a child, how is the small and medium-sized enterprise, which is where a bulk of our employees work, how are they supposed to keep their job open and pay for this person to be absent? So I think, Preet, you know, our country is known for innovative thinking. We even got a telescope up in space to you know, study satellites and planets way out in the universe. If we can do that, I think we can get a group of people to sit down and say, what do we need to do for small and medium-sized enterprises to be able to put in place paid leave? To me, that's what needs to be solved. When it comes to companies and paid leave, big corporations and paid leave, it's a no-brainer. And how much paid leave should be offered? I would say, I would start with, the 12 weeks for uh, maternity care, maternity or paternity care, whatever you want. But that's just table stakes. 
we just have to look at this as a human issue. I'm a product of paid leave. When my father was dying of cancer, I was given paid leave. I was given paid leave for my two kids' birth and when I was in a car accident. But in every case, I came back and I was an even more dedicated employee than I was before I left on paid leave. Uh, and so I think if we view it as a human issue, and we don't say this is something people want to exploit just to goof off. If we don't approach it that way, I actually think paid leave can be a great retention tool and a great way to um, keep a great employee base working for your company. Did PepsiCo offer 12 weeks? Yep. And you think all companies should of a certain size? Uh, you know, they should look at it very, very hard. I want to talk to you about corporate citizenship. It's a complicated issue. You talk about the role of companies in part to make society better. And I wonder, my, my first broad general question, and then I'll get more specific, is what is the proper balance with respect to a you know, good-sized company? It doesn't have to be as large as PepsiCo. Balancing attention to the bottom line versus a better country or world. You see, that shouldn't be a choice. So let me give you an example. Let's say there's a company, a small or medium-sized company, that has to dump a whole bunch of chemicals in its effluent stream from the company. Okay? If it's focused on the bottom line, it dumps those chemicals in the local canal, saves money, dumps the effluent stream there, and generates a fantastic return for the shareholders. Who's going to pay for all those people who are going to get poisoned by those chemicals in the canal? Right. But in that example, that's a short-term strategy. And the general counsel of the company will tell you that's not a great idea when it comes to future liability. Well, let me just tell you, many companies do that, yeah. even today. General counsel notwithstanding. Yeah. Still happens today where people- They should listen to their general counsels more on behalf of all lawyers, I'm, say uh, I'm saying. Well, I'm that. not sure every general counsel is like Preet Bharara. I think there are many general counsels who help you navigate these issues and somehow weasel out of it. So I think that's just a tip of the iceberg. At every point, let's think about plastics when we generate plastics. If we don't pick up the plastic and create a closed loop, these plastics are going to go into the landfill. Today's landfill is somebody's foundation tomorrow. So we have to think very, very hard about what, are the, what is the impact to society of our actions. And if you think that way, I think you'll actually do different things and make different decisions as a company. Now, I will tell you, if you say, I'm just going to make money any which way, I'm going to put pedal to the metal, make all the money I can, and guess what? I'll set up a foundation in my company that gives money to some charitable organization. There's a place for that too. That's giving away the money you make. All that I'm saying is companies ought to rethink how they make the money, how they make the money. And think about every aspect of their supply chain and say, am I doing the right thing? I mean, the best example is uh, sourcing. If you're sourcing from a country where uh, this child labor is prevalent, I'm not saying overnight change your sourcing. How do you go into that country and work with them to see how do you send these children to school? How do you make sure the family gets an income when those children are not working? But make sure that you put in those standards that are synonymous with good companies into that country. Are corporations in America and around the world doing enough on the issue of climate change? I think the noise and the actions of companies that have actually stepped up in the last few years, I'm seeing actual progress in this area. People are talking about it more, maybe because of the ESG investor, maybe because CEOs are getting more aware and conscious of the issues. Uh, but I'm seeing more action from corporate America the last two or three years. So further to my earlier question about corporate responsibility, and again, you, I, know you're, you're, I know you're going to say that these are not choices, but there are a lot of stakeholders. You have the shareholders, you have employees, you have customers, you have society. How did you think as CEO of those different constituencies? That's what makes a CEO job so difficult and so exciting because the shareholder gets a return because you focus on all of the other stakeholders. If you didn't have customers, there's no shareholder return. If you didn't have employees, there's no shareholder return. 
But you can't keep growing at the expense of those people. So let me give you one example, Preetan. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. If you look at a lot of uh, medical systems today, they're being bought up by private equity, which is great. You know, I love private equity. They are a great force for growth and innovation. But then you cut costs, you cut costs, you cut costs. You deliver a great shareholder return. What happens to those patients? What happens to service to people who need it the most? So I think if you don't serve the customer right, all your shareholder returns are short-term. And at some point, you're going to find that customers just leave you. Or worse still, society is going to be badly off because you enriched a few shareholders. And so I think at every point in time, you've got to tell yourself, without customers, without consumers, without society, without communities, without suppliers, without employees, you don't have a company. This phenomenon people have been referring to as the great resignation. Mm. Do you have any comment about that or conclusion about that? The key thing is not to talk about the great resignation as a one glob of people. I mean, we throw out these numbers of 3 million people have left to 4 million people have left. Let's break it down into pieces. I think there's about 10 or 15% of the people who are not really the great resignation, but the great redeployment. They've gone off to do things that they always wanted to do. I think there's another slice which is still struggling with COVID. They are ill. They haven't come back to the workforce. But I think 60 to 70% of the great resignation are people who just don't know how to go to work because the pay is not good. They don't have childcare. They think working conditions are not conducive for them to, uh, you know, just go and work and then come back totally drained and unable to take care of their families. And so I think we have to worry about this group of people who serve hospitality, the care industry, and the critical industries that make the quality of our life possible. So I think it's very important we take slices of this great resignation and really focus down to, for example, this morning I saw the article on nurses, the number of nurses that have quit because they say, just can't do it can do it. So we have to go slice by slice and ask the question, what's causing them to quit? What do we need to do for them? And how do we bring them back to the workforce? I think we're in an economy where we could actually get down to two or three percent unemployment if we can support our employees the right way and not grow on the backs of the essential workers. Do you think we're teaching the right things in American business schools? <laughs> That's a loaded question. I actually believe... <laughs> well, we, we, should, we should talk about the fact, we'll put it on the table, that you went to the Yale uh, School of Management. You have endowed the deanship there. I believe the deanship is in your name. Uh-huh. And, and I will also say that based on my experience, not to offend other business schools, I have experienced speaking at, at many top business schools. I, I feel that there's a greater interest at the Yale School of Management generally than at some other schools in public interest, and not everyone just jumps into finance. So with that preface, now answer the question. Um, I actually believe that business school education is badly in need of a relook. And, um, you know, business school education is fantastic. The two years you go there, uh, you know, teaches you so much. uh, And you go in as a uh, student to come out as a business executive. So it teaches you a lot. But business school education hasn't moved much in the last decade or so. And I think there's a lot that needs to be done to teach students that, um, you know, net worth is not self-worth, that you have to worry about society at large. You know, all companies have limited liability because they owe society a duty of care, but somehow people have forgotten the duty of care part. And um, they've also got to be taught that problems are complex. You know, Preet, I tell you, when we do cases in business schools, we race through cases. We race through them. We never pause and say, let's study this case for two weeks. Why don't we bring the head of the environmental uh, uh, engineering department to come and talk about environmental issues on this particular case or have the economics department, the political science department talk about the issues related to the politics of this country. Bring somebody from the law department to talk about the legal issues underpinning this case. Instead, what do we say? Just make all the money you can, and if everything fails, bring the divinity school to pray for you. 
doesn't work that way. <laughs> Does not work right. that way. So I would really urge a relook on business education. Do you have any advice for would-be CEOs? Now, today's CEO is in a tough environment. The world around us is changing so profoundly. Technology is racing forward. It's very hard to keep up with it. Yet you have to adapt and adopt those technologies inside your company. You have to become a foreign policy expert yourself because the world around us is changing in many ways where we thought the world was flat. Now it's flat with lots of uh, barriers between countries. Uh, the role of the multinational has to be uh, you know, carefully thought through, judiciously thought through. And so today's CEO is dealing in a complex world, is operating in a complex world, has to be a learning CEO with lots of curiosity, ability for lifelong learning, and has to have the incredible ability to zoom out and zoom in, constantly look at the world in a broad way or an issue in a broad way and zoom in and say, how can I implement it in my company? So the CEO of the future has to be special. And I hope we are developing people with broad experiences and, uh, uh, you know, exposing them to all kinds of situations so that they can be this kind of CEO. So it's very easy, in other words. <laughs> yes, Pete, I'm glad I'm not a CEO now. <laughs> <laughs> Indra Nui, thank you so much for joining us on the show. The book is terrific. People should get it. It's called My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Preet. My conversation with Indra Nui continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week with a story from the world of book publishing. No, it's not about the banning of books. I'll leave that for another day. It's terrible and deplorable and un-American. But instead, I want to tell you about an uplifting story about publishing. It's about an enterprising and highly imaginative eight-year-old second grader from Boise, Idaho, named Dylan Helbig. Let's begin with this past December, when Dylan using an empty notebook given to him by his grandmother, embarked on a four-day whirlwind of writing and drawing to complete an 81-page storybook. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but there's a memorable moment in the book when Dylan describes himself decorating the family Christmas tree only to have the star on top explode and transport him through a mysterious time portal to the very first Thanksgiving in 1621. Sounds like a page-turner. Like any author... Dylan wanted people to read his work, so he took the logical, if as he puts it, naughtyish measure of sneaking his newly minted book onto a shelf at the Lake Hazel branch of the Ada Community Library in Boise. By the way, he titled the book, The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas. Christmas spelled, of course, C-R-I-S-M-I-S. Here's what he told the local Boise television station, KTVB, last month about the covert operation. There was a lot of librarians that I had to get past, so do you know what I did? What'd you do? I covered this part and covered the back with my body and just snuck it in. But that night, he confessed to his parents why his book was no longer in their home. The next morning, they called the library with hopes of retrieving Dylan's work, which they had assumed had been discarded, but had maybe found its way to the lost and found bin. But to everyone's surprise, the librarians said that their son's debut effort was more than worthy for a spot on their shelf. In fact, per the Washington Post, Dylan's book became one of the most sought-after works at the library. What's more, publishers have even expressed interest in officially publishing the book, and the library has even given Dylan its first-ever Houdini Award for Best Young Novelist, an award they created just for him. There's also a proposed project in the works that would have Dylan team up with a local author in Boise to form a workshop that encourages young, aspiring writers to pursue their storytelling dreams. I'm happy to report that The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas is not only highly in demand at the local library, but thanks to some national coverage, it's inspiring children across the country to take initiative in putting their own pen and or a crayon to paper. And so I've got to say, amidst 
what has been a discouraging wave of book banning taking root across the country, it is really encouraging and inspiring and heartening to hear a story like Dylan's. And I, of course, look forward to Dylan's follow-up book, which he says will be about the Grinch and will feature his dog, Rusty. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Indra Nui. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Das. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.